This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Spring 1990. And the Black Tower at Universal Studios commands the skyline of the San Fernando Valley. From its top floor, Lou Wasserman can see the studios of NBC, Warner Brothers, and Disney, all of which pale in size and influence beside Universal. He can see the buzz of activity at Universal itself, where film and TV production is at an industrial pitch and the Universal Studio Tour is one of the most successful tourist attractions in the country. But what he can't see is the future. And that blind spot is where the danger lies. In just a few weeks, the film magazine premiere will release its annual power rankings. And for the first time in anyone's memory, Wasserman, the man who built MCA Universal into an empire, will not occupy the number one spot. Instead, he will sit in second place below a talent agent Michael Ovitz of Creative Artists Agency. And there's another surprise brewing. At this very minute, one of Michael Ovitz's minions is peering down at the Black Tower from a turnoff in the Santa Monica Mountains. He's been instructed to find the best viewpoint of Universal from which to persuade a group of foreign businessmen to buy Wasserman's kingdom out from under him. Ovitz is mounting a coup, and Wasserman is not only clueless about it, but powerless to stop it. Hollywood was changing. Studios were all owned by foreign entities. No person can run anything ever again. Was Mike Ovitz as powerful as Lou Wasserman had been in the day? Never. He dreamed about it and he never got there. People today, leaders today in this business, are looking back at that time and scratching their heads thinking, how did he do it? A lot of people aspire to that throne. I don't think anyone has become as powerful as someone like Lou Wasserman. I'm Sean Levy. This is Glitter and Might, the Lou Wasserman story. There were a lot of times in the second half of the 20th century when it would have been great to be Lou Wasserman, but the mid-1980s were pretty special. Thanks to its favorite son, Steven Spielberg, and especially his blockbuster hit, E.T., the fortunes of Universal Studios were over the moon. For Hollywood, E.T. has made history, grossing nearly $35 million in its first 10 days of release. For Steven Spielberg, it means business as usual. Spielberg and success are one and the same. The universal lot that Spielberg called home was nothing like the decaying facility that Wasserman purchased more than two decades prior. New sound stages and production facilities had been built. There was a posh hotel and a major performance venue, the Universal Amphitheater. In all the world, there is only one Hollywood. And in Hollywood, there is only one Universal Studios. Known as the entertainment center of the world, Universal is the home of what has grown to become the fifth most popular man-made tourist attraction in existence. And weaving through it all were the trams of the Universal Studios tour, which allowed visitors to peek behind the scenes of a real movie studio, 
It required little investment and produced gigantic profits for the company. At the time, there wasn't the kind of media that we have today. People didn't know the names of producers and directors. People thought actors got in front of the camera and made up the words. It was a different level of knowledge. And I think Lou Wasserman recognized that they could pull the curtain back and let people see a little bit of how the sausage is made. This is Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. He was just so savvy in seeing where the business was going. That's the art of being an executive is to see around corners. And Lou Wasserman, by all accounts, did that better than anyone for 40 plus years. Of course, looming over all of it was MCA's headquarters, that 14-story black tower. Universal was like the studio in the 80s, and we were all intimidated by it. So as you would come in the main gate, there was this thing that they called the Black Tower looming over you. And the dark night that ruled the Black Tower was Lou Wasserman. This is George Zaloom, a producer who met Wasserman when he was a young man getting started on the Universal lot. I met Lou or ran into Lou many times on the lot. We would always go up to the Black Tower at night when no one was there and use the Xerox machine. One night, it was like 10 o'clock, and I turned around, and I heard this voice. It's like, oh my God, it's like Lou Wasserman. And I said, I'm trying to get the Xerox machine to work. Do you know how the stapler option works? And he's like, huh, I don't know. Let me take a look at the thing. Together, like, we must have spent like 15 minutes working at the Xerox machine. So he's like, all right, there you go. You got it, kid. Aside from the corridors of the Black Tower, the one place people expected to find Wasserman was the commissary, the studio dining facility that was far more like a fine restaurant than a cafeteria. As Wasserman ate his daily lunch of tuna loaf or fruit salad and a slice of cherry pie, Universal executives, actors, and Hollywood agents would line up to talk to him. We couldn't afford to eat at the commissary because it was too expensive, but every once in a while, we would go there to celebrate if we did something good. And we would see him there. He was really tall, was towering. He had that big white hair, just that sort of image of a studio god. He was the guy. He was Mr. Universal. In 1986, on top of all the triumphs that Universal was enjoying, Lou Wasserman reached two momentous milestones, the 50th anniversaries of his marriage and his arrival at MCA. There was only one thing to do, throw a party. Hell, throw two parties. In the summer, the Universal backlot was made over to resemble the Depression-era Cleveland where Lou and his wife Edie first met. A full roster of the Wasserman's famous friends showed up to celebrate. In December, the lot was remade again, this time to resemble the Prohibition-era Chicago where MCA was founded. Johnny Carson emceed a variety show that included a video message from one of Wasserman's first clients as an agent, President Ronald Reagan, who, alongside his wife Nancy, offered warm congratulations. Finally called upon to address the crowd, Wasserman was characteristically self-deprecating, declaring of his career, quote, Show up for work every day on time for 50 years and you will be rewarded. The audience loved it. 
If time had stood still right then, Lou Wasserman would have been the most powerful, the most celebrated, and the most successful mogul Hollywood had ever known. But, of course, that's not how time works. The idea that American movies would be controlled by anyone other than the handful of people who ran the studios would have been, even 10 years earlier in the 1970s, pretty inconceivable to the men who ran those studios, but also to the rest of Hollywood. This is film historian Mark Harris. And in the 80s, we start to see this very destabilizing possibility that, like, what if there is a new power model altogether? At that point, when you're talking about Lou Wasserman, you're really talking about someone who was the old guard. And like many powerful figures in entertainment, the last act of his career is a period during which his power keeps coming under a new series of threats. When Wasserman had been a talent agent at the start of his career, he'd helped bring an end to the studio system and had wrested power from studio bosses. Now, decades later, Wasserman was himself the studio boss being besieged by talent agencies, ones even more aggressive than he and MCA had been back in the day. The new breed of agents thrived by packaging their clients, actors, writers, directors, into ready-made, take-em-or-leave-em projects that they then sold whole cloth to studios. And no agency was bigger or created bigger packages than Creative Artists Agency, CAA, which was run by a former Universal tour guide named Michael Ovitz. In the 1980s, we see the beginning of crazy star salaries coming back in vogue and the threat of a shift in power away from the men who ran movie studios and toward agencies. And there was another rising threat to Universal's dominance, coming ironically from television, the medium which Wasserman had practically invented. With so many big cities just starting to consider cable, it's worth remembering the prediction that in 10 years, half of America's nearly 80 million television homes will have cable. Wasserman had passed on investing in cable while Warner Brothers made an early investment in the creation of HBO. And he had failed to diversify in emerging media at a time when the Australian newspaper magnate Rupert Murdoch was acquiring 20th Century Fox and aspiring to build a global media empire. Wasserman's MCA, once feared as the octopus, was now a small creature in an ocean filled with large and hungry multinational corporations. As the studios were becoming enormous and enormously profitable, big corporations had realized that there was value in Hollywood. And so there started to become these extraordinarily powerful mergers that were happening between electronics companies and Hollywood and, and on and on and on. In 1988, the Japanese home electronics giant Sony purchased the acclaimed Columbia Pictures. Lou Wasserman knew what was coming. We're a 200-pound gorilla in a game with 1,000-pound gorillas, he told MCA shareholders the following year. Surely, he had to be seeing the rise of all these new competitors and the potential for international to really grow in a bigger way. I think that he probably sensed that it was time to sell. 
What Wasserman didn't know yet was that another Japanese electronics giant, Matsushita, was already looking for a Hollywood studio of its own to purchase, and it had engaged the help of an intermediary to guide it, Michael Ovitz of CAA. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-1970s, Michael Ovitz had been one of five agents who had broken away from the William Morris Agency to form a new business focused on packaging TV shows. By the 80s, Ovitz and CAA had shot to a position of such power that they could make demands of studios about what scripts to put into production, what directors to assign them to, and which actors to cast in them. And nobody relished that power more than Ovitz, who believed he was following Wasserman's example with vicious displays of power. Famously, he once threatened a screenwriter who balked at his commands with a letter that read in part, My foot soldiers who go up and down Wilshire Boulevard each day will blow your brains out. He was emulating Lou's power and becoming the most powerful agent in Hollywood. And he becomes Lou Wasserman incarnate in running CAA. Lou's wardrobe was black suit, black tie, white crisp shirt. That became Ovitz's approach at CAA, the army of Minnie Wasserman's. Here's Steve Singular, author of Power to Burn, Michael Ovitz and the New Business of Show Business. CAA had a car wash on site, so their cars would always look spectacular. They had a dry cleaning service on site, so the clothes would always look spectacular looking as successful as possible. Like Wasserman, Ovitz was known for his masterful deal-making, his explosive temper, and his relentless work ethic. When somebody would apply for a job, he would say, if you're out the night before and you get in a car wreck and you break your leg, if you have to crawl, are you going to get to work the next morning? Are you going to come into this office? But there was a difference between Wasserman and Ovitz, perhaps generational. Wasserman, born in 1913, held a fundamental belief in civility. When he exploded at an employee or rival, he knew that he should smooth things over, and he knew how. He never let a man leave his office unhappy, remembered MCA agent George Chasen. After he'd scold somebody, he'd put his arm around their shoulders, assure them it was strictly professional, then offer them a drink or dinner. Ovitz, on the contrary, 33 years Wasserman's junior, came to dominance in the age of greed and ruthlessness characterized by the character Gordon Gecko from the film Wall Street who many in Hollywood believed was inspired, at least in part, by Ovitz himself. 
I think, honestly, knowing this town, there is a respect for people that don't beat their chest too much. And I know that sounds crazy in a town where there's award shows every week, but it's true. It's like the more you beg for it, the less they respect you. By the late 80s, Ovitz had equaled Lou Wasserman in raw power, in the ability to make people quake, and in fame. And then he starts to think about what he can conquer beyond signing Tom Cruise and lucrative talent deals. What else can Mike Ovitz do? And as Hollywood started to be courted by giant corporations, he thought, gee, maybe there's an opportunity to broker a deal for Lou as he's getting older to sell Universal. Ovitz wanted to become this big deal broker and whatnot, but I think he also wanted to be seen as Lou Wasserman, as this guy who could just make people bend them to his will. I don't think Lou Wasserman would have ever have looked at Mike Ovitz and said, this guy is a threat to me. The tide of history had shifted, though, and Ovitz was now powerful enough, if not to replace Lou Wasserman, then at least unseat him. Without Wasserman's input or approval, he negotiated the sale of MCA to Matsushita. Lou hadn't even met the Matsushita executives by the time most of the negotiations were sealed. The U.S. company that brought you Back to the Future today decided that its future belongs in Japanese hands. MCA, the conglomerate that owns Universal Studios, is being sold to Japan's giant Matsushita, the largest Japanese buyout ever of an American company. It's Oedipal, isn't it? Lou Wasserman ultimately, finally, after this unprecedented run, being undone by an agent. Nobody in Hollywood was more responsible for empowering agents than Lou Wasserman was. It's kind of a perfect Hollywood ending. I'd say Greek tragedy, but I'm not sure anything in Hollywood ever rises to the level of Greek tragedy. Wasserman personally pocketed a half billion dollars on the sale, and he remained nominally in charge, but nobody believed he had brokered the deal. The word around Hollywood was that Ovitz had eaten Wasserman's lunch. Here's entertainment industry analyst Ann Thompson. I would imagine that the reason that could have happened, it's sort of like, this is a weird analogy to make, but for decades, Harvey Weinstein got away with everything that he did because he was very powerful and because he had so many different projects and different ways to make people rich, ways to make people win Oscars, that even the people that he hurt, they kept their mouths shut for a really long time. All of these people played along until he was weaker, until he was no longer what he used to be. That New York Times story and the Ronan Farrow story could happen because Harvey Weinstein was no longer Harvey Weinstein. And I would suggest to you that at the end of his career, Lou Wasserman, when he was older, someone could put something over on him like Mike Ovitz. But I don't think Mike Ovitz could have done it to Wasserman in his prime. Wasserman stayed on at MCA, but it became increasingly apparent that Matsushita's leadership saw him as just another employee. I don't think there's a world where Lou Wasserman could conceive of what was going to happen once the Japanese came. As brilliant as he may have been, he couldn't imagine the disrespect in his view that he was treated with. Sid and Lou went to Japan when they were feeling the constraints of the Matsushita ownership. 
and were left sitting for a really long time outside the offices for someone to meet with them and ultimately were met with by some very low-level executives. This was a kind of insult that neither one of them would have any experience with. It was shocking to them, and I think it was shocking when it became known in Hollywood. They must have been raging. What they didn't know, what was being deliberately held secret from them, was that Matsushita was at that moment in talks to sell MCA Universal to another buyer. In fact, almost no one in Hollywood knew about it. No one except apparently Michael Ovitz, who once again was brokering a deal for Lou Wasserman's company behind Lou Wasserman's back. Matsushita is ready to get out. And Ovitz is helping them get out. But Sid and Lou, they weren't in the loop on that at all. That was such a slap in the face. In 1995, without Wasserman's input, MCA Universal was purchased by the Seagram Company, the Canadian alcohol distillers. Even more than under the Japanese, Wasserman's role was reduced to mere window dressing under Seagram's rule. Seagram's renamed the Black Tower the Lou Wasserman Building, but it was a hollow tribute. I had lunch with Sid after he was out of the company, and he was so devastated that people weren't returning his phone calls anymore and the way he was being treated. And he told me that they had returned his portrait, that they had just sent it to him, like, we don't need this. And it was crushing. And I can only imagine it would be the same for Lou. Hollywood watched in puzzlement as Wasserman kept up the appearance of running the show going into the office, sitting in on meetings, attending functions. Asked when he would stop working so hard, he'd reply, well, they can't stop me from coming in, my name is on the building. But that's all it was, a name. You've got more money than you could ever spend. You're Hollywood royalty and emeritus. Why end up being the guy sitting in the commissary at Universal having your tuna loaf on Tuesdays where nobody's coming to your table? After another five years, Seagram sold Universal off again. The French water utility Vivendi became the third owner of MCA Universal in a decade, and its executives may never even have heard of, let alone met or acknowledged, Lou Wasserman when they signed the deal. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Shrunken though he may have been in Hollywood, Wasserman continued to wield influence in Sacramento and Washington. Even as he approached 80, Wasserman kept close to political power. Ronald Reagan's first formal lunch after leaving the White House in 1989 was with his old agent, Lou Wasserman. Just a few years later, Wasserman became an early backer of another man who would go on to occupy the Oval Office. I'm crazy about him, he once told Connie Bruck, who became one of his biographers. If you get me going on the subject of Bill Clinton, I'll sound like a love-struck teenager. Clinton felt an equal amount of affection in return. Carl Gottlieb, screenwriter of Jaws, recalled visiting the White House with Wasserman during Clinton's time there. 
a delegation from the movie industry went to Washington, D.C. to plead the industry's cause for the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was being negotiated at the time. We sat in the big conference room adjacent to the Oval Office, and Bill Clinton came out. And then when we were through, we all posed for a picture with the president. And then as we're milling around and, you know, getting our stuff together to exit, Wasserman looks at his watch and he turns to Clinton and says, what are you going to do now? And Clinton says, well, I've got some free time. And Wasserman says, me too. Why don't we talk? So Wasserman and president of the United States go off to have a private chat. I mean, Wasserman had the president's ear. Just a few years later, in the summer of 2002, then former President Clinton would be one of the speakers at a memorial for his friend Lou Wasserman, who had passed at age 89 just a few weeks before. He told a crowd of more than 3,000 who had turned up at the Universal Amphitheater for the service, he helped me become president, he helped me stay president, he made me a better president. One of this country's original entertainment industry giants, Lou Wasserman, died today from complications of a stroke at his home in California. He called himself just a pencil pusher, but during a 50-year career, he developed powerful friends in politics and show business. Fireworks don't last forever. Launched into the night, they illuminate the sky briefly, centered around a blazing bright core, then fall away into long, slender arches that eventually vanish altogether. The career of Lou Wasserman was like that, except he lit up the world for decades. And even when the light that emanated from him faded away, the tendrils of his work and brilliance were too great for him not to endure. As it was, he did everything he could to leave no trace of himself. But his fingerprints are everywhere. In the careers of actors who get to produce their own films, in the blockbuster franchises that dominate the movie calendar, in the recycling of movies and TV shows on cable and streaming services, in the seen and unseen webs connecting show business to political power, he created the impression, like no one before or since, that everything that happened in Hollywood happened on his watch. He was the ultimate puppet master who essentially ran everything that made Hollywood operate. We talk a lot today around disruption in business and whether it's Airbnb or Uber, but that's something that Lou was doing in the 40s and the 50s. You had the sense that his finger was all over the place in Hollywood. I don't think anyone has become as powerful as that no one has had as many tentacles reaching across the industry as Lou Wasserman. But perhaps the best sense of how he wished to be remembered is the grave where he rests alongside his wife, Edie, who outlived him by nine years. It's a simple brass plaque laying flush in the grass, marking his final resting place. Lou Wasserman, husband, father, Grandfather is all it says, a modest remembrance for a man whose life and impact were anything but. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. 
We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.